Romans chapter 4. And I'll tell you, Matthew has a Matthew has a few passages. Boy, that seems loud, doesn't it? How about that? Is that better? Okay. Matthew has a few passages. Why don't you come over here with me to Matthew chapter 8. The faith of the centurion here. And when Jesus has entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him to ask for help. Lord, he said, my servant uh, lies at home paralyzed in terrible suffering. And Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve you. Have, have you even come under my roof? Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Well, think about that a second. That's a lot, isn't it? For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes, and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was astonished. He was amazed. And he said to those following, I'll tell you the truth, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. From the east and the west. He's not talking about Jews, is he? No, it's going to be a big deal. But the subject of the king uh, will come and take their place with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hmm. And then Jesus said to the centurion, and here's my main point, go and it will be done just as you believed it would. That's, that's an ending statement. This is a cut and dry deal. You came to me because you understood and you believed, and all I did is speak a word, and it has become reality. Come over with me to chapter 9. 
Uh, verse 27, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and asked, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. He touched their eyes and he said, According to your faith, will it be done to you? And then over here in chapter 15, there's a Canaanite woman. She's crying out here, verse 22. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering, suffering terribly from demon possession. And Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came and urged him, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. She's not a Jew. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Is that true? He came to that which was his own. He didn't come to the Gentiles. He came to that which was his own, meaning the Jewish nation. But his own would not receive him, John said. Verse 25, the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Well, that was kind of a personal metaphor. You're not a part of the family. You're a dog that people ought to be afraid of and try and get rid of, and you're begging for scraps from the table from the children. Yes, Lord, she said. Okay. I don't care. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I'll go with the metaphor. You just be the man. I'm just looking for a crumb here. And then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. In who about what? In Jesus. About what? Mm, no, he's king big time. He's got power and authority nobody else has. He is, in fact, God in the flesh. His whole mission, his whole purpose, his teaching, his power, everything about him says God has come to us. And here I am before the only one who would help, and I'm not leaving. Please help. And she trusts. It's not that she's more hard-headed than Jesus. It's, I, I don't care. My current position outside the fellowship of the Jewish faith, but she got enough, something's going on here. What's she doing following Jew, Jewish rabbis? What's she doing listening to people talk? What's she doing? She's seeking something. Well, she's seeking his help. She, I, I'm not even going to let my current position Stand in the way of me getting help from you. Now, who do you know would do that? How many people do you know 
that let their current position keep them from following the Lord. Oh, God doesn't want anything to do with me. God's been done with me for decades. Really? No? Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. As you believed, so be it done. Just as you believed, it will be done. There's a thing there. And the people that should have had the most faith weren't having any faith. But there's this connection with God that's only through faith. And that's always been the case. That's always been the case. As we said this morning. No, no, oh, there it is. In Romans 3.25, and this is, this is where we're at. I'm not sidetracked. I'm just telling you, this message is all through Scripture. And Paul said, atonement Atonement, Romans 3.25, is the basis of God dealing with people. And because of this sacrifice, because of the justice that is here, God presented him as a satisfying, a satisfaction. That's a real literal practical meaning for the word propitiation. A satisfaction. God presented him as a satisfaction. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So this right here is telling us that's how God has ever and for always been able to have fellowship Fellowship with sinners. This is God's just action. He proved his absolute justice because through this action, what he is offering to men, to people, This is what he's offering them as righteousness. When he, we, we deal in terms regarding sin and we talk about forgiveness so often and we conjure up this idea in our mind that God must be like us and so forgiveness is people getting away with something. Because people sin against us, we don't even contemplate, we're like, it's all right, it's okay. That's no, not Okay. That's not okay. What we mean is, I'm not going to worry about it. I'll just, I'll just dismiss it. Well, God can't dismiss sin, and he hasn't dismissed it. 
And right here is the key. If we can get a hold of this, this is the key to helping us understand all of Scripture. And so the access of people to God has always been through faith. Why is that necessary? To have, as we talked about this morning, fellowship. To have relationship with God. Most especially to have covenant relationship with God. How are you going to do that? When God's invisible. How are you going to do that when God is spirit and you are flesh and blood? How are we we going to do that? By faith. That's always what's been required. Faith. And without faith, the Hebrew writer would say in chapter 11, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him, I don't care if you're trying to get a servant healed. I don't try if you're trying to get healed. I don't care if you're trying to get forgiveness. I don't care if you're trying to get God's blessing, God's favor. Anyone who comes to him must believe not attain to some, some intellectual ascent. No, you got to put your full weight down on it. When you can't see God, you got to believe that he is the existing one. He is the eternal God. And what? Must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. All these three people in these examples right here were convinced of that. I must stay after him. He will reward my faith in him. And he did. So, as we're talking about righteousness and God imparting it, and Romans is talking about that, this is not a new thing. Romans doesn't stand on its own. This is, this is underlined and this is expressed in all of Scripture. And God has said very clearly in chapter, from chapter 118 all the way to 320, everybody has a problem, it's unrighteousness. God has provided a solution to the problem. It comes through this atonement made by Jesus at the cross, and the solution is God grants his righteousness because he's the only one that has any, And this lets God be just in giving sinners righteousness, crediting their account with righteousness. We just don't think in these terms. We have to think in these terms because this is God's word. This is God's will. This is God's purpose. And there's not something else. What does Abraham have to say in regard to this? Romans 4. What then should Abraham say? Why is he going to bring Abraham as an example? What are the people boasting in? We need to read the tail end of of chapter 3 here. Let's start in verse 27. Where then is boasting? Since God presented the cross and he's just to ever fellowship anybody, where then is boasting? Did Noah have something to boast about because God saved him? No. Was it Noah's righteousness that saved him? No. What about Abel? No. Sue asked me this morning, what about Enoch? What about Enoch? What do you know about Enoch, remember? Two things. He walked with God, and he was no more. 
He got to skip the death deal. Hmm. How'd he do that? Him and God were together. Him and God were in fellowship. He walked with God. Was he perfect in his performance? No. He had the same problem other human beings had since the garden, Genesis chapter 3. He fell short and he sinned. So some way, somehow, God had, God had a way to get Enoch righteousness. Hebrew writer explains it. By faith, Enoch walked with God and he was no more. He had the very thing God's calling us to have. Enoch's life was different than everybody else's life. Well, he knew God would reward his faith in him. He just kept his faith in him. Where then is boasting? It is excluded on what principle? On that of observing law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing law. So, so what our faith is connecting us to is God's willingness and God's offer to justify us. What do you mean justify? To declare righteous. To credit with righteousness. Now, if somebody already has righteousness, can you credit them with righteousness? No. So the very thing that he says to declare righteous, what do you mean declare them righteous? I mean, they're not, but I am. He has a way to declare people righteous. He has a way to credit people with righteousness. When you do that, what you've done is you have justified that person. You have credited them with righteousness. So now before God, what stands on their account? Righteousness. Righteousness. Well, big whooping deal. We spent an hour this morning talking about it. What does that create for you? If God credited you with righteousness, what do you have with God? Peace access, standing, fellowship. It's as though God has created a spiritual paradise right now. Right now, that's available to people. Christianity is not people getting away with anything. Christianity is God offering people fellowship and them receiving it, taking it, and walking in it. It is God offering them righteousness. It is God justifying them, not making up excuses for their sin, making them right with him. And the cross of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is what enables God to be just and do that. So, the gospel is going to remove boasting. Has anybody been boasting so far? Yeah, back over there to 217. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, you brag about the law, you boast about yourself, you think you are God's personal gift to all the poor sorry people, 
a teacher of infants, a light for those who are in dark, an instructor of the foolish, all of that, that is boast, 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 boast. Their concept of the law of Moses didn't remove that boasting. As a matter of fact, it promoted it because of the way they had perverted God's covenant. Their covenant should have humbled them. They, they made it about themselves, so they had to boast. Anybody who doesn't need God to justify them, anybody who has declared themselves righteous, anybody who has righteousness and has credited it to themselves, anybody who has accomplished righteousness on their own by what they do would necessarily have the right to boast, but there's not any of those people. There's not any of those people. So if the Jews are primarily people boasting, and when people start boasting, what's going to happen to the church? Within the church, within the body, when people start boasting, when I'm boasting about me, guaranteed, inherent, when I start to boast about me, what must I do with Paul? Just use him as for example. Guaranteed, when I start boasting about me, what will I do with Alan? What will I do in regard to Jim? Or anybody else at any given time, I'll put them down. Boasting, it never, first of all, it does exalt self, but it never just exalts self. It always winds up pointing out condemnation for others. And so that's got to be removed. Why would he bring up Abraham? Because the Jews are the one boasting. And Paul said, we're not doing that. Who are the two people the Jews are most likely to lay claim to? Abraham, because he's the father of the nation. That is their, that is their cry. We are descendants of Abraham. His covenant with God is our covenant with God. His standing with God is therefore our standing with God. Time out. They misunderstood something. Did God promise to bless and favor Abraham's biological descendants? Yes. Through Isaac and Ishmael? No. Through Isaac. Isaac was the result of God's promise. Isaac was the result of God working his purpose and bringing righteousness to people he loved. Abraham and Sarah, he used them. He took an impossible situation and brought about a child through which he would bless the whole world and bring about the Messiah, okay? What then should we say that Abraham, we're in chapter four now, our forefather discovered in this matter, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, if he accomplished righteousness on his own, then he necessarily would have to boast. Then he would have something to boast about, but not before God. Why, God's already righteous. He, wouldn't, he was not proving anything to him. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. Not he believed in God, he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. When God told Abraham about conceivably an absolutely impossible thing, 
Your almost dead body and your dead womb of your wife are about to bear fruit. That's an impossible situation. And what did Abram say? I believe you. I believe you. Abraham became fully persuaded God had power to do what he promised. That's what Abraham did. Abraham is an example for us about what to do. What does Abraham's example call us to do? Be fully persuaded God has power to do what he's promised. In the gospel, what has God promised? He has promised to credit us with righteousness. He has promised to justify us in the blood of his son. That's what he promised. That's what he promised. What else has he promised? That his son's coming back to get us, take us home. That's what he's promised. If we're going to follow Abraham, let's just do what Abraham did and believe God. He says, now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, he's not talking about a lazy guy. What's he talking about? The guy who doesn't pursue this on his own. I'm just going to accomplish this myself. No, you're not. Nobody is. Nobody is. Now, the man who, uh, who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him As righteousness. David, number two example. David says the same thing when he speaks about the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness. What would be another word for that? Justify. Blessed uh, apart from works. Verse 7, and he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven. We talked about this morning. What's the great, all the things we're thankful for. Why don't we get down to the nitty gritty sometimes? How many of our prayers contain confession of us to God about his declaration of us as righteous? Thank you, God that you've made me right with you. Thank you, God, that you have declared me righteous. I bet in my whole lifetime, I've listened to thousands of prayers, publicly, privately, semi-privately. And over the thousands of prayers, that's not a pervasive thought. That's interesting to me. Why is that? Are we fully persuaded God has power to do what he promised? Did he promise us righteousness? Is that the promise of the gospel? For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is from faith unto faith. Genesis 15, God credits Abram with righteousness, Abraham. He credited, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He doesn't circumcise his son till 17. He doesn't sacrifice his son till chapter 22. 
So when did he declare Abraham righteous? In his mind, I'm not sure. But he'd been talking about it a long time before he, saw, before he sacri- went up on the mountain to sacrifice Isaac. He had this a long time. It was given to him by God. David says the same thing. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is God going to count your sin against you? Did he? Does he? Will he? Well... I don't know. Well, we need to know. We need to know. Is he going to keep is he going to keep his promise? Is the blood of Jesus washed me from my sin or not? Well, in following after him and trusting him, what brought me to the cross? I didn't physically take a trip there. What brought me to the cross? The cross is not standing anyway. They took it down. But it's an occurred fact in history. What brought me to the sacrifice of Jesus if it was not faith? It was faith. Then what keeps me connected to the sacrifice of Jesus if it's not faith? It is faith. Is there any example throughout biblical history of God ever crediting anybody with righteousness, especially sinners? Yeah, here's two. Number one, Abraham, and number two, David. God gives these two, these two examples right here. They had, Abraham was God's friend. God called him a friend. He was in fellowship with God. He was in covenant with God. Look at his life. Look at his walk. His walk wasn't Botless, his his morals weren't perfect. He he failed, he messed up, but he just kept going and he just kept following and God just kept calling and he just kept answering. And he walked in the footsteps of faith. And he didn't accomplish it on his own and he sure didn't take the law of Moses and accomplishment and accomplish it because he lived 400 years before that. So evidently, in regard to sinners having righteousness, I'm not that concerned about the law of Moses. Abraham lived before that, and he got righteousness. David lived under the law. The law had no, the law had no opportunity to do this. Was David a, did, did God find David to be a man after his own heart? Acts chapter 13. First Samuel, did he, find, did he find David, son of Jesse, to be a man after his own heart or not? He did too, and he crowned him king. And David proceeded to lie and to murder because he had committed adultery. Now, what are we talking about? You got a lying and murder and a fornicating adulterer And God said, no, we don't. We have someone here that's forgiven. We have someone here that I've credited righteousness to. Why was he a man after God's own heart? 
because God presented his sin to him, David wouldn't confess it. I don't think he would have ever confessed it on his own. So he sent the prophet Nathan to David. Nathan gets in his face and he tells him this horrific story about a rich fat guy that had a bunch of big fat rich friends come into town and he's got a whole herd of sheep and he will not sacrifice a lamb for that guy. But there's an old man in town that lays down and sleeps with the only little ewe lamb he has. The rich guy goes and gets the ewe lamb, slaughters it and feeds it to his Friends, then press him. What do you think about that guy? And David said, he's done. Nathan said, guess who the guy is? You're the man. Well, there's penalty for everything David's done. Death by stoning. There's no possibility for any hope whatsoever. And almost in the same breath, as it were, Nathan points out to him, God has put away your sin. Now, here's nine majestic miracles I'm going to do to prove that. He didn't do a cotton-picking thing to prove it. He just said, God has put away your sin. And then told him all the consequences that nobody wants to live through that are going to happen because of it. And David, I'm convinced, writes those four Psalms, 32, 51, 103, and 116, and pours out his soul and praises God and, and cries out to God so that he can enjoy the forgiveness that God has given him, so that he can get a hold of the, the fellowship that God has extended to him. Because there's no way under the law of Moses that God can justify David. He can't. According to law, all he can do is condemn him. But yet he's justified. And he's blessed. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven. Those who are consciously aware that God has condemned what they've done. But when those sins are forgiven, when those sins are covered, there's great blessing comes to that man. Blessed is the man, not just the people in general, the man specific. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Who's he talking about? Jews and Gentile. Abraham and David, that's the example of two Jews. He hadn't talked about a Gentile yet. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Was Abraham circumcised and then God said, oh my goodness, you're so obedient. You were such, you're such deliberately obedient. You just went way over the edge here and now I owe you something. Nope. Mm -mm. And yet Jewish Christians were trying to demand of Gentile Christians, I know because I've read Romans and Galatians and the rest of the letters Paul writes, and they're trying to, to force what upon Gentile Christians? Circumcision. 
I know repent and be baptized. I know all that. And then you need to be circumcised. And you need to follow the law. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. And Paul said that's not even a sound argument. Why? Because Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. Hmm. It was not after, but before. Verse 11 is really important. And he received the sign of circumcision. What was circumcision a sign of? Abraham's covenant with God. It was a sign that he walked with God. It was a sign that God had credited him with righteousness. It was a sign that that was in place. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he's the father of us all. He's the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to him. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, just like Abraham was circumcised, but who walk also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Abraham was trusting God, following God, giving his life to God before he was ever circumcised. And I realize maybe that doesn't, we have a hard time with application there. One thing I hear people talk about is, well, circumcision and baptism are the same thing, and so people, people, can be right with God, they can have righteousness before they're baptized. Well, number one, circumcision and baptism are not the same thing. In this argument, they're not even in the same ballpark. Because in this presentation, circumcision is a sign of the covenant that they're already in. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with baptism. Do we have a sign of our covenant that we're in with God? Yeah, the Holy Spirit. He is our seal. He is our sign. Baptism's not a sign of anything. Baptism is chronologically when we enter the atonement of Jesus. It's when we enter covenant with God. It's when God has promised to wash us of his blood. Now, I didn't say how, I said when. This is how God washes people. This is the blood offered. Baptism's the covenant ceremony he gives us, so we're supposed to identify he's done what he promised he would do. And he promised to wash away our sins, and then he promised to live in us. Verse 13, it was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. 
The law of Moses is under discussion, but the principle is following along with it. If you can just be righteous by what you do, then what just became worthless? Faith. If you can just, if you can just satisfy God by what you do, then faith just became worthless. Law brings wrath. For those who live by law or heirs, the promise is worthless and faith has no value because law brings wrath. Really? Law brings wrath. We don't want to be under law unless you want the wrath of God on you for your sin. We don't want to be under what we've performed. We don't want our record brought up. We want God to credit us with righteousness. Uh, Because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. I realize that might be a confusing statement. He's going to fill that out later on. But... If God, if God removed us from the condemnation of the law, not the law of Moses, we were never under it, but the law of sin and death, when did God repeal that? When did the wages of sin stop being death? When did sin stop separating people? That was millennia before the law of Moses ever got here, and that was never repealed. The Gentiles don't have the law. Yeah, but they know, more, they know right from wrong because they punish people for it. He already went over all that in chapter 2. And them pointing out, them, them pointing out the error of people is, is a statement in regard to they understand right from wrong. And what they did is they failed. But if God removed the law... in regard to our standing with him, if he took away the law, then what would he take away? The condemnation. If he took away the law, then what would he take away? The wrath due sin. You know, you know, when David, he, he, he never told David, I've justified you. He just told David, your sin is forgiven. Well, brothers and sisters, there's not a sacrifice under the law of Moses for murder. There's not a sacrifice under the law of Moses for adultery. There's not a sacrifice for any of that. Lying against God. There, there's not a sacrifice for any of that. So how on earth did he forgive David? The cross, he didn't mention it to him. No, he didn't. It's just like Jesus saying, just like you believed, it'll be done. All he's got is the word of God and God, God gave David the word of God. You are forgiven. You will not suffer the wrath due your sin. You will not suffer the condemnation due your sin. So evidently, and David knows God's not going to do something illegal, but he doesn't, he doesn't understand. There's no way he could understand 
what God's given to him. But he believes it. He'll write Psalm 51 and say, get out the hyssop, get out the scarlet wool, get out the ashes of the heifer, get out the blood, get out anything that has anything to do with cleansing. You get it out, God, and you cleanse me. Because this is the greatest desire of any of us is to be made right with God. And this is the message of the gospel, brothers and sisters. God has a way in the cross of Jesus to make us right with him. And if you're a Christian, he did it. That's what happened when you were baptized. He connected you with the death of Jesus, washed you in the blood, cleansed you up, and declared you as righteous. And the rest of that dash mark between the dates on the tombstone, the rest of the thing we call life is us wrestling with the lies of the devil to overcome it and believe what God has told us that God's already done. And this doesn't just save our soul on the day of judgment. It transforms our lives right now. See, we're trying to live as living, we're trying to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. We're trying to live sacrificial lives and we don't have a hold to this. It's never gonna happen. It was never commanded to happen. Paul said in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy. Brothers and sisters, this is dripping with God's mercy. In view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. This is the inspiration that God has given us. This is, it, it's, this is the power. Where's the beef in our faith? It's right here. It's this message that God credited you with what Jesus did. And by the way, he credited Jesus with what you did. That's the only way he can give you what Jesus performed, which is righteousness, is he took the unrighteousness you have performed and I have performed, and he placed it on his son right here at the cross. This is God judging and condemning our sin. That's what this stands for. Can't do that. Sure can, because God did it. And he can talk about it as an occurred fact before he ever does it if he wants to. Because just like Abraham, we understand and we know that God calls things that are not as though they were and gives life to the dead. That's the God Abraham followed. That's the God who's calling us. He called us to enter this through the gospel and he calls us every single day to continue to believe the gospel message. The gospel's message is not you got away with something. You didn't get away with anything. Nobody got away with anything. God dealt with it right here. And you didn't see it and you couldn't smell it and you can't remember it. All you have is God's word on it. And that's good enough, isn't it? It is. All Abraham had was God's word on it. Was that good enough? It was good enough for Abraham. All David had was God's word on it. Was that good enough? It's good enough for David. So I'm asking you to think about these things because this is your greatest dream ever come true. 
This is what it cost God to create right now again for us, as it were, paradise on earth. Wars still happen. People still hate. People still murder. People still kill. All those things. All those things. Maybe they're at ever-increasing levels. I wonder about that. I don't know. And in the middle of that, if you can believe it, in the midst of all that, God has created this place where you dwell in with him and in him in perfect peace, where you dwell in him and with him in his righteousness. That's what he's given us in Christ Jesus. Now, that's the good news. That's the good news. This is the only message that God will ever give that will defeat sin in my life and your life. We best learn it. It'll defeat the condemnation of it. It'll defeat the practice of it. It'll defeat the the dependence upon it. It's not that we don't sin and make mistakes. Brothers and sisters, all of us sin and make mistakes. But we don't believe that sin is the answer to life. We do not. We don't honestly believe that we are the source of life. We don't believe that we have accomplished righteousness in the way we structure the church, structure the assembly, and worship God. And we know better than that. But here we are. Why don't we give up? Because of all this. Because God has given this. God has given you such a standing with him. Everything is right between God and you. That scares people to death. You think, well, that's not scary. No, it does. I guess, or we misunderstand it because we, we yak and run off at the mouth about everything else in the world in Scripture other than this. And every bit of Scripture has always pointed to this. It is though it is though scripture is a wagon wheel and that's the cross of Jesus and all of these spokes and all of this rim that goes down the road called God's purpose every single thing comes to the cross. It's supported by the cross. It gains its strength and its purpose and its function from the cross. I don't care go back to the garden of Eden. I don't care how far time goes. Everything comes back to the cross. Everything is supported by the cross. None of this makes any difference or matters at all if the cross is not the hub of everything, and it is too. I know we'd like to do a better job. I know we'd like some more holiness. I know we'd like some more ever what it was in prayer. We were singing a song a while ago. I can sing that song because I do want that. 
But the holy life we live to God, Paul's going to show us in the book of Romans, is hubbed right here. Or it won't happen. It won't happen. This is it. So, consider those things. Write down, write down your questions. Lord willing, Wednesday night comes, we get together, we'll field questions. I'm not trying to kill time up here. I'm not trying to present some cute rhyming lessons from the book of Romans. I'm not scared at all of its message. And anything I say regarding it, I'll defend to whatever length you want me to defend. What I'm wanting is for us to understand what he's saying. And I realize I talk too fast and I go too quickly. And I apologize. At any given point. I understand that. Brothers and sisters, that's why it's written down. There's no need to brush it aside or to some way, somehow, we can get a hold of it and we can understand it. And as y'all give me feedback, that, that helps me. I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm just trying to teach. I'm just trying to preach in a way you can understand it. So if you have questions, write them down, write them down on a piece of paper and don't sign your name to it. I, I don't care. <coughs> just get them to me so I can help us. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father in heaven, we love you, Father, for who you are, for being the eternal promise-keeping God who by his own nature gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. As your distinct privilege, and you have paid the right for that privilege. And we honor your authority and your power to make such promises and to keep them. And we pray, Father, as you have been so patient with us, that you continue that in a way that wins our hearts. That you continue, Father, to help us. Help me get this message. I, I know it's deep. I know there's so many facets of it. I know, Father, these words are not words we use on the sidewalk very often, but they contain life. They contain hope. They contain, Father, not boasting. They diminish and they defeat boasting. They promote confidence. And you want us to have that. You offer it to us. You paid the price to offer us, Father, to have confidence in Jesus who died for us, to offer us, Father, confidence in the truth that you tell us. You had acted, Father, graciously and mercifully to people who have trusted you and depended on you and, and went your way no matter what it cost them, Father. You have done that throughout the ages. Abraham and David both certainly are examples of that. 
We could learn, Father, from reading about them that you had a plan and you had a way and you, you made them right with you. They accepted that power and that promise, Father, and it changed and transformed and empowered and undergirded their lives. And they did great and marvelous things for the cause of redemption. And so, Father, will we. We may not face physical giants or bears or five foreign kings and go to battle with them. But we will, Father, battle against sin in our flesh and we'll do that willingly according to your word. And we'll do that, Father, for the sake of other people and we'll help them to battle sin in their lives and doubt in their lives and failure, Father, and weakness, and we will point them toward you. And you again, Father, will glorify yourself for keeping your promise, for affording righteousness to unrighteous sinners, for bringing in that righteousness, that that gift, Father, you will bring with it purpose, purpose and help and hope. And you will do that, Father, in a way that glorifies you, for you're the source of all of it. Please, Father, be with us. Help us to understand these things. Help us to understand them and to the extent, Father, we can explain them to other people because the world just has to know. The world just has to know, Father, how good you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Bless us, Father, as we seek to understand and know you better, as we seek to understand, Father, the details of why and how you bless us and what you've given us what it is, Father, you want us to have a hold of. Please, Father, be with us in some way that glorifies you. It's our earnest prayer through Jesus who died for us. It's in his name that we pray these things now. Amen. God paid the price, brothers and sisters, to love you. I don't know why he loves you. I can understand him loving you. I really can. What I struggle with is him loving me. And I can't tell you why he loves me. But I can tell you how much he loves me. He loves me to the death of his own son. Why does he love me? Because he wanted to. We're not waiting on God to love us. He can't love us more than he does. We're not waiting on him to be more powerful than he is. He has exalted his son to reign and rule right now over all things on our behalf. In him, nothing can be the undoing of us. Nothing can be the defeat of us. Now, that's a fact. You can leave him if you want to. Why on earth would we? There's nowhere to go. He has the words of life. We can help you tonight in a public way if you need our encouragement or our prayers. Uh, we'd love to give that to you. You could let us know now while we stand and while we sing.